välkommen. Du lyssnar på en inspelning från internationell författarscen på Kulturhuset Stadsteatern med Marsha Gessen i samtal med Harald Hultqvist. Mitt namn är Ingemar Fast och jag är konstnärlig ledare för litteraturscenen i detta stora allkonsthus vid Särgelstorg i Stockholm. Låt samtalet ta sin början. Thank you. Well, good evening everyone and a very good evening to you. It's such a wonderful opportunity to talk to you. Hello. It's lovely um, to be here again. Well, the first question is always the hardest to come up with as an interviewer. And uh, especially in a book like this that is so broad in scope and has so many facets and so it, 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 it is really a, uh, a web of different ideas and different uh, persons coming through. So. But one of the themes in this book is, uh, one subject which is reoccurring, is uh, psychoanalysis and trauma theory. So I thought to myself, maybe I should just lean back here like an <laughs> analyst. And I no, put I think you that's the, what I'm doing. Uh, yeah, I put you on the divan and I say to you, just say anything that comes to your mind. <laughs> <laughs> But on the other hand, that, that, would, that would make me not uh, would ever make everyone understand that I didn't do my homework so I have a question for you okay. uh, but it's very vague uh, per person so, that's so, the best kind yeah, of question yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, what I wonder is this uh, book is centered or it's actually not centered at all if I say so it's it's more of a sprawl but it has seven main characters that we have followed through the period of the last three decades more or less in in Russia, or the end of the Soviet Union and then Russia. And uh, uh, it's, a very, it's a very clever plot to show different sides of society and so on. Was it your idea from the beginning to, to build a story upon these seven persons, or did you have like the idea of what you wanted to tell and you wanted, or how did you come up with this, with this uh, with, a, with like the plot of the book? I don't actually know. <laughs> I, okay, um, next question. Yeah. <laughs> so here's here's what happened. I um, my first idea was to write about trauma, uh, and it actually came about in a very strange way. I um, I happened to listen to a lecture that a friend of mine, who is an academic and clinical psychologist, uh, recorded for prosecutors who work with women who've been uh, uh, victims of uh, human trafficking. And her goal in this lecture was very simple. She, uh, she wanted to explain trauma psychology to lay people who are not well-versed in psychology, and specifically to explain to them why the women that they worked with were so difficult why they were so fragmented, why they sometimes seemed to be malingering and sometimes they were great witnesses, why they were so unreliable. And as I listened to it, and as I listened to how she explained the mechanisms of control in a human trafficking situation, I thought, oh my God, she's describing a totalitarian society. Uh, and she's describing what happens to people in a totalitarian society. And then after I talked to her and I did some reading, I realized that that was no accident because actually the study of trauma psychology originates with studying people who have been through internment camps and through studying people who have been through, through brainwashing situations. And so it, it is actually the study of, of totalitarianism. Um, 
And so for a while I had this idea that I would write a small book uh, about just this idea that, um, that a lot of what has happened uh, post in the post-Soviet society is explained by this trauma. And I even, uh, there was a series that the New York Times was doing, little books about big ideas, so I pitched it to them. And I think they found it completely incomprehensible. Uh, <laughs> so then I, um, I pitched a different book to my publisher, and then I got a very large grant, and I thought, oh, I can do whatever I want. <clears throat> and then, see, this is where the, the narrative gets, gets really confusing. Um, then I had surgery, and I was under general anesthesia, and when I came out, I had this idea that I was going to build the book around seven characters. <laughs> so, so the answer is, I really don't know how I came up with it. Okay. And I think it's suitable for you know the psychoanalytic couch. Yeah. But did, <laughs> did you did you uh, did, did you know all these people from before, uh, or uh, did, did you did you like look them up? Uh, I, one of them we should say you didn't even meet, but uh, but right. uh, but did you look them up, or did you know them from before? Or? Um, so I had the idea that I wanted to. Uh, find four people who were born in the mid-1980s. Um, and so there, there are two things that I've been thinking about a lot for many, many years. One is that uh, what it was like to be a child in the 1990s. Because I think we've, we've thought uh, and talked a lot about what it was like to be an adult in the 1990s and how exciting it could be, how exhilarating it could be, how scary it could be, how disorienting it could be. But what was it like to, to have parents who are in those states? Um, and I think that's essential to understand, to understand what's happened to Russia. Um, and also to understand that while the parents were in that state, in that state of constant uncertainty and instability, uh, there was also an island of certainty. And it was in the Soviet propaganda that didn't go anywhere. It was still on television, it was still in monuments, it was still in architecture, it was still all around. So I wanted to bring those strains together. So I, uh, that's one reason I wanted people who were born in the mid-1980s. And um, my criteria for choosing them were that they had to be from different socioeconomic backgrounds because I also wanted to be able to show how stratified Soviet society was, which is something that I think is not understood enough. I wanted them to be at least somewhat geographically spread out. I wanted them to um, remember 1991 so people who didn't have a memory of 1991 couldn't qualify. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and I wanted them to be people whose lives have been changed by the crackdown of the last five years. Yeah. Um, so that meant th they weren't going to be Putin supporters, right? They were going to be people uh, who lost something mm -hmm. as a result of the crackdown. Um, and of course, they had to be people who were willing to talk to me for like 30 hours uh, and answer really inane questions like, what did you see on television? And then what happened? And then did you look out the window? And then what happened? Um, and you know, that's not, not everybody's up for that. And in fact, uh, I had a couple of false starts with people who agreed to do this. And then there was just no way they were going to be able to have the kind of patience uh, that it required. So someone had to be actually interested in the project of telling their lives. Uh, and it, it ended up being, uh, the only person I had never met was Jana Nemtsova, the daughter of Boris Nemtsov. But she knew who I was and I knew who she was, obviously. Um, and everyone else, there was a little bit of trust or a lot of trust that preceded 
the relationship, and that's the only way it could work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing that I wanted to, uh, something that I had been thinking of for a long time was what had happened to the social sciences in the Soviet Union, how they were destroyed, and how that robbed Russians of the tools of self-understanding. And so I needed social scientists who would talk to me, and one of them didn't, um, and um, so that I could I could trace that. And again, they had to, to be willing to talk mm. to me for a long, long time. Mm. That's perfect. Now you lined up uh, almost every one of the themes and questions that I have, so we will get back to almost everything you said. But huh? I would start with one thing uh, that you didn't mention and that, they, that you do not mention in the book, which is the eighth person in the book, which is you. Uh, you lived in, 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 in Russia during most of this time, not all, all of the time, but most of this time that you describe. And, but you are absent from the book. We, 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 we cannot read anything about what you saw or what demonstrations you were at or what your friends thought about things and so on. And I suppose that's a very conscious decision to, to operate yourself out of the book. Why did you do that? I think of myself as the writer of the book. Aha, uh-huh, okay. That's a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> no, but... Uh, um, so, um, I, wanted, um, I wanted to break some journalistic conventions for this book. Um, and this was not for the sake of experiment. I mean, I've written many much more conventionally journalistic books, and I probably will again, right? But, um, but for this book, I wanted to change the distance. Um, Usually, journalism is told from sort of the the middle distance. You know where the journalist is standing in relationship to the person that they're describing, which is you know roughly like mm. this far. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I can I can observe you, mm. but I can't see inside your head, and I also can't see the larger picture of your life, except for what you tell me. And um, I wanted to use a more novelistic approach. I wanted to get inside people's heads, so just uh, use the zero distance. And I wanted to really give the very, very big picture, so sort of a bird's eye view. Which, if you think about it, a lot of uh, classic Russian novels are constructed in that way. You're either in the interior or you're you know, at bird's height. Um, and that requires an absent mm. or an omnipotent narrator. Yeah, it's a very literary mm. work in that sense, sure. and it's uh, uh, and that's one of the things that makes it so readable. Um, yeah. One of the things you mentioned in when when going through how you met these persons or how you looked them up is uh, also one of the things that was uh, new to me, uh, or rather new to me and fascinating, uh, and that is the destruction of the institutions that taught and uh, researched things like economy and uh, and uh, sociology and so on in the, in the Soviet Union. And you claim that through the destruction of things like psychology, sociology, economics and so on, uh, people didn't have the tools to understand the society that they lived in themselves. Right. And that has an effect still today. Can you talk a little bit about that effect or what, what it meant? So, um, you know, very early on, uh, the Bolsheviks decided that the social sciences, as they had existed, were a threat to the new regime. 
and there was what's called, what was called the philosopher's ship, which was actually a number of boats on which uh, philosophers, historians, uh, sociologists, psychologists were exiled from Soviet Russia. Uh, and this in is 1920, the 1920s. 1922-1923. Yeah. 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 Um, and Lenin said that this was the humane alternative to execution. Well. Uh, and uh, the idea was that everything had to be su uh, subsumed by the new ideology. But Lenin had a particular disdain for sociology, which he considered a pseudoscience. And there's, there's a history to that, which, which I describe in the book. But um, that basically meant that for most of the, Sovi uh, of the Soviet period, sociology did not exist, um, which was actually a problem for Soviet leaders because they wanted to know what was going on in the country. But the longer they didn't, the longer there was no sociology, the more dangerous sociology became as a possibility. They really wanted the, the sociology without the sociologists because sociologists would have too much power because they would know too much. And so sociologists weren't really allowed to work until the late 1980s uh, when Gorbachev really needed to get information about uh, what, was, what was happening in the society that he was trying to reform. Uh, psychoanalysis, which is another strain in the book, uh, had a similar fate, but, but with, with a twist. Early on, the Bolsheviks thought that psychoanalysis might actually be very useful for the project of creating the new man. And there was even a psychoanalytic preschool for the children of the Bolshevik elite in Moscow in the 1920s, but it made, uh, it, it, it made the, the parents very sexually anxious, as it turned out. And, um, and also it turned out that psychoanalysis didn't scale. You know, you can't actually use it to produce millions of new men. Um, and so psychoanalysis was banned. And psychology as a concept couldn't really exist within the Soviet utopia because there was no room for inner conflict. The Soviet man had to, had to be the product of Soviet society and had to exist in perfect harmony in, with Soviet society. And if he didn't, then there was something wrong with him, right? Wrong not in, the, in a normalized psychological way, but either he was a criminal and then he belonged in prison, or he was mentally ill and he belonged to in a psychiatric institution. So psychology as the study of inner contradiction was impossible. Um, and other social sciences were, I think, subjugated in less extreme ways. But in the end, um, I quote early on in the book, I quote the brilliant Russian economist Konstantin Sonin, who is now a professor at the, in, at, at the University of Chicago, who wrote something that's, that, that stuck with me, which is that an economist working in the Soviet Union in the 1970s would be incapable of understanding the writing of his predecessor from half a century earlier. And I thought that is an extraordinary loss of uh, understanding. It's an extraordinary loss of language. It's an extraordinary loss of tools. And if you can't understand yourself, if you can't understand yourself as a person, you can't really develop, you can't grow, you can't change. And I think the same is, is true of society and may even be more true of society. A society that can't tell any stories about itself cannot transform. 
So the, the society that was in 1989, 90 and 91 and during the collapse uh, was a society unable to understand itself. And as you mentioned, Gorbachev actually tried to, to or he let the sociologists that were there, some underground uh, seminars mm -hmm. had been held and so on. And he said, okay, so can you start investigating society? Uh, so now we have a, th have a thriving uh, sociological scene in Russia uh, supported by the state, or? <laughs> <laughs> well, a few things happened. Um, so, um, I mean, one strain through the book is the study that has been ongoing since, since the late 1980s. So there was this great Soviet sociologist named Yuri Levada who, um, who learned to be a sociologist despite the ban on sociology. He was educated as a philosopher and then he undertook the study of sociology and he created this semi-underground study group that lasted for 20 years. Every couple of weeks they would meet and everyone in the study group had a job. They all had to read a particular, keep up with a particular strain of Western sociology and deliver papers on it regularly. So the whole group was up to date on, on the state of the field uh, in the West. And in the late 1980s, uh, Levada was allowed to uh, assemble his group in an official uh, institute and go out and conduct a study. And it's kind of funny to listen to Lev Gutkov, who is the, the character who represents sociology in the book, recount what happened because they were all great theoreticians. And they thought they were going to go out and do a study, but they had never done a study. They had never done a survey. They didn't have the slightest idea of how to actually practically, you know, hands-on do it. Um, but the bigger problem was that it was a society that hadn't been studied. And how do you study something for which there's no baseline? So they had to invent ways to sort of break into this monolith. Um, and they created this giant survey uh, that they the, the conducted, and Levada's hypothesis was that there was such a thing as Homo Sovieticus, the Soviet man, uh, and that this Soviet man had developed to survive in conditions of state terror. And since there hadn't been any state terror for 30 years, he hypothesized that the Soviet man was generationally bound and was about to die out, and once the Soviet man died out, then Soviet institutions would collapse, and then the Soviet Union would end. And so they did the survey in 1989 and they concluded that yes, Homo Sovieticus existed and the Soviet Union, and it was generationally bound. And two years later, the Soviet Union collapsed right on schedule. And, uh, and then in 1994, they went back and did the survey again and they discovered something very disturbing, which is that the hypothesis was sort of thrown into question. Homo Sovieticus was still very much there, but didn't seem to be dying out, and didn't seem to be really bound to a generation. And as early as 94, they started saying that they feared a revanche of, of, of the Soviet uh, system. And then in 1999, they did the survey again, and they've done it every five years since, and they said that the Soviet man is not just thriving, but reproducing. And as early as that, they were talking about a possible return of totalitarianism. Which brings us to the core of the book, I would say. 
I said it didn't have a center, but if it has a center, it's totalitarianism, I would say. It's it's the subtitle too. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. But uh. yeah, so that's e an, an easy one. Uh, one of the one of the persons that you uh, most often refer to when when talking about uh, totalitarianism is Hannah Arendt, of course, and she's uh, forms a part of your reasoning about this, uh, of course. But uh, another interesting figure uh, with a slightly similar uh, personal history is, is Erik Fromm, who mm. wrote a book, Escape from Freedom, in 1941. And you found some, uh, some, something, some things in that book that were, uh, were uh, uh, practical for you to use in, in writing this book. What did you find in, in the writings mm. of Erik Fromm? It's actually, it's amazing to me, you know, in, in the States, since Trump's election, the origins of totalitarianism has... Uh, enjoyed this incredible resurgence and has even made it on the bestseller lists. And I'm really surprised that Eric Fromm hasn't become, uh, hasn't had the same kind of return because actually he's much more accessible and in some ways even more relevant to, to the current moment in the United States. Um, he's, he is enjoying a resurgence among mental health professionals because he also, when he was living in the States after the war, uh, he came up with the concept of malignant narcissism. Uh, so that's um, that's a diagnosis that's really w back into vogue uh, in the last year in in social psychology. But uh, um, but his 1940 book, Escape from Freedom, uh, which is a wonderful book, uh, and uh, it has this really uh, poignant um, introduction where he apologizes for writing uh, for that the book is a little sloppy uh, because he says he had to write it really fast because he thinks that the world is in crisis and the world is on, on the verge of catastrophe. And of course, you know, a book that's written in 1940, uh, it, I mean, it's, it's quite striking. Um, and uh, he has this uh, the, the framework that he offers and he basically says that there are two kinds of freedom. There's freedom from and freedom to. And freedom from is the kind of freedom we all want. We all want our parents to stop telling us what to do. And freedom to is freedom to invent oneself, freedom to come up with a future. And that can be an overwhelming burden for people. Um, it can be absolutely paralyzing and frightening. And he suggests that there are certain periods in human history when people, when a critical number of people are so overwhelmed by freedom too that they want to escape from it. Um, and that they want to give up, uh, to hand over their agency to somebody like Martin Luther or Adolf Hitler or Vladimir Putin. So that's, uh, that's why he's, he's useful for that. And you, but uh, another thing when you make your analysis of totalitarianism is um, uh, two things are uh, often said, they, you need terror and you need ideology in order to have a totalitarian, so to, to keep it up. And you kind of question that idea and you have a concept that I thought was uh, so, so good to describe, it's the signaling system of the state. And uh, you say that the signaling system worked in the Soviet Union, and then it somehow collapsed in 1998, and now it's being re-erected and it's functioning again. What is yeah. the signaling system of the of the of yeah. the state in the in this 
I'm, I'm so glad you noticed that because the, uh, uh, that is an important idea for, for, for me. Uh, so I think that uh, to survive in a, t in, a, in a state of terror, uh, in, 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 a, in, a, in, a, in a country where the state engages in terror, a person has to be extremely sensitive to signals. And this is something that we don't think about very often, although you can find this idea in Arendt. Uh, she talks about the state of constant instability, right? Um, and the state of constant instability is necessary to keep people on their toes at all times, to, to make life unpredictable and to make people live, uh, or psychologists would say, to make people uh, live in a, in a state of low-level dread. But a key to survival, not a guarantee of survival, but a key to survival was being able to perceive those signals and, uh, and follow them and say the right thing and act correctly at any given time. Because you know, we think of Soviet ideology as being consistent and, and sort of monolithic, but in fact it was incredibly dynamic. Uh, things were always changing, and you had to be f following them, and you have to you had to know what was ba right and what was wrong at any given time. Um, and I think in the late 1980s, when uh, during Glasnost and Perestroika, uh, at first signaling was working, uh, and so suddenly it was right to talk about Stalinism, or it was right to talk about history and to re-examine history. But that itself through the country in a kind of, into a kind of signaling chaos. And I think that signaling chaos is what explains what happened in 1991. Uh, it was basically a total breakdown of any kind of communication between uh, people who thought they were in charge and people that they thought they were in charge of. Um, but under Putin, uh, even though I don't think that he set out to create a totalitarian regime, he set out to create a mafia state. But that mafia state sends out signals that are interpreted by a society that used to be totalitarian. And so it taps into all the habits and, 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 um, uh, and systems of a totalitarian society. And it has resurrected the customs of a totalitarian society, even though there's not actually a totalitarian regime. And the signaling system is is up and working again. So they because they they kind of tapped into the signaling system again. And you have uh, not a precise date, but but at least a year, I would say, when when this this uh, started working uh, again. And it's 2012, which is kind of a deciding year in in, in the history of this book and in the history of, of modern day Russia. What exactly was was the difference between to say 2010 and 2012. I mean, what happened in 2012 that really changed things? So in 2011-2012, there were mass protests. And in 2012, of course, Putin appointed himself president again. He was in a position to do that because he had turned Russia into an authoritarian society over the first 12 years um, of his power, of his reign. And the difference between a, an authoritarian and a totalitarian society is that an authoritarian society is not mobilized. In fact, the authoritarian leader wants people to stay home, tend to their private lives, and not pay any attention 
to what the authoritarian leader is doing and how he and his small group of, of allies are dividing up the country uh, or its wealth. Um, nothing is political in, a t in an authoritarian society. In a totalitarian society, everything is political. The totalitarian leader wants people out in the public square supporting the leader and private life actually disappears. Everything becomes a matter of participating in this public ritual of totalitarianism. So Putin's authoritarian society was working and uh, up until a point, and then people became political. Not a whole lot of people, but enough people to make Putin extremely uneasy. And these were the people who were protesting rigged elections uh, and corruption in, uh, in the winter of 2011-2012. And he responded to those protests by cracking down, by introducing laws that made it very difficult to protest, that by raising the stakes for protests, by putting peaceful protesters in jail, uh, and especially by putting peaceful protesters in jail at random, which is a terror tactic. And that, I think, was a turning point from authoritarianism to uh, the lived experience of totalitarianism, right? Because all he had to do was start using some small tactics of totalitarianism, like the, you know, like the small, uh, sort of a small sample of state terror. And the old fears and the old reactions kicked right back in. And that's when Russian society became totalitarian again. Yeah. Yeah, I heard that uh, I was uh, at a seminar, and I, I don't have any any other. It was just a, a Russian activist who said that they had a list of about 120 political prisoners in the Soviet Union, uh, in, in, in Russia. Russia mm -hmm. I mean, in Russia. And if you compare that to the political terror in the Soviet Union, right. it's of course it's it's a very small amount right. of people. But of course, it's tragic for every single one of them. But right. uh, but uh, you only need that few in order to, to, to get this terror going because it's not the people in the prison, it's everyone knowing around them. Or exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, that's how it worked in, uh, in the late Soviet Union. I mean, the, in the period that Václav Havel called post-totalitarianism, which is the period after state terror. So in the, seven, uh, you know, in, in in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, and 50s, there was mass terror. Millions of people were arrested. Hundreds of thousands of people were executed. But after the mid-1950s, there was a new kind of economy of terror. Because all they had to do was arrest a few people to signal that the possibility of terror still existed. And because people knew what terror was like, because they had that memory, it worked. And now what the state is doing is it's signaling that it's the terror is possible again. And so it's now it's the memory of the memory of terror. And that still works. One thing we haven't mentioned here is one thing that I don't know if it's always needed, but it certainly helps if you want to keep up the uh, totalitarian rule. And that's an enemy. Yes. You need an enemy. And uh, Russia has many enemies, if you should believe Putin, but uh, above all, one enemy within, which is kind of the perfect enemy within, and that's uh, 
predominantly gay men, but the LGBT community as a whole. Uh, why is this the perfect enemy for, for, the, for the Putin regime? Right. So, um, LGBT people are perfect because the moment you start talking about LGBT people, it's clear that you're talking about something foreign, something that didn't exist in the Soviet Union before 1991. And it's actually true, you know, th there were no gay people in the Soviet Union before 1991. There were homosexuals, there were people who had sex with people of the same sex and who had relationships with people of the same sex. But there weren't people who claimed an identity. There weren't people who claimed a commonality and said that there were certain human rights that accrued to that group because of its identity. So you can really pinpoint something that, that came, uh, that appeared after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And it's clear that it came from the West. So you can immediately communicate that it's foreign, it's other, and that by getting rid of it, you can transport people into an imaginary past in which they felt comfortable. What's also great about LGBT people is that Russians, the vast majority of Russians believe that they've never met a gay or lesbian person in their lives. So it's like this perfect abstraction. Uh, and of course, people that you've never met can be both sort of less than human and more than human at the same time. So they're very, very frightening, but also deserving of all kinds of horrible punishment and horrible violence. And that's why the, uh, the Kremlin's anti-gay campaign has been so effective at mobilizing violence and sort of delegating violence and creating what we now see, among other things, in Chechnya, you know, just, just out and out murders of, of yeah. gay men. Yeah. yeah, and this this delegation of violence is also something the 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 mo I, don't, I don't know if I should say most of the violence but very much of the violence against uh, gay people is not conducted by police or anyone. It's right. conducted by ordinary citizens in broad daylight and no one seems to do anything to, to, to stop this. Or no one is of course too much said but most people seem not to care. Or it's, it's, it's quite terrifying. I mean, um, I, uh, I, I had to leave the country uh, because of the anti-gay campaign, but also I've met a lot of people in New York who left the country because of the anti-gay campaign. And usually they talk about uh, how terrified they were when they first came into contact with the violence. And it's not the violence itself. It's not just getting beaten up. It's the experience of getting beaten up in broad daylight in the center of a, of a large city with people walking past you and nothing happening because that violence has been so legitimized by the, by the very seat of power. Mm. Yeah. And how much, how much it, what, what, what kind of tools do the government use to, to is it, do they, uh, is it laws that they are, are, are they legislating against, uh, uh, against homosexuality or whatever, or are they more, is it propagandistic, or what, what are the tools that they are using to? Um, the, the laws are a very small part of it, and the laws, you know, they don't function as laws. Laws also function as signals, because, um, you know, the, I mean, a law like the law uh, on gay propaganda, which, uh, the, the, uh, the gay propaganda is defined as the intentional distribution of information that can cause harm to the spiritual or physical development of children, including forming in them, I'm quoting, uh, the erroneous impression of the social equality of 
traditional and non-traditional sexual relations, uh, marital relations. Right. So it's like anything and everything, uh, and and nothing. Uh, and that means that any number of people are at any given time in violation of this particular law. That's a classic totalitarian tool because everyone becomes an outlaw and no law can actually be evenly applied. It's always selective application, selective enforcement of any, of any law, but you always know that you're guilty, right? Um, but when a law like that is passed, it's passed not in order to drag people into court, it's passed in order to communicate to a large number of people that they're now in violation, and to an even larger number of people that these people are outlaws, and that it is okay to, 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 to um, attack them. But a much bigger part of it, of course, is just is, is propaganda. It's you turn on television in Russia um, almost any day, and you will hear something about those horrible gay people, whether it's that um, you know that the, the, they're trying to prey on small children, or that um, or that the European Union wants to advance the gay agenda into Ukraine, which is the reason for the war in Ukraine, or some other thing. Uh, it, I mean, it's, they're difficult to remember because they're so absurd. But they're you know those mm -hmm. those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. And you also have some examples in the book of people that are actually being accused of, uh, of uh, not of, uh, but of uh, really horrendous crimes, pedophilia, right. that are, it seems at least, some of, I mean, they are framed in these situations, yeah. and they are, you have another the mechanism, the, the so-called red wheel, they are they are convicted before they are even uh, before they you just have to say something and then they are convicted at once because there's no way of getting out of these accusations it right. seems well i mean there's no way actually of getting out of any uh, charge in the russian system the russian acquittal rate is less than half of one percent so if you've been charged with a crime you will be convicted of the crime uh, the thing about a crime like pedophilia though is that no one will ever defend you. I mean, how can you possibly defend somebody who's been accused of something so horrible? And uh, we're you know, observing a case like that now in, in, in Russia. A historian, an, an, a historian activist, an activist historian in uh, Petrozavodsk, uh, in Karelia, um, who has um, single-handedly located uh, a huge number of burial grounds from the Great Terror, he has been accused of producing child pornography. And that's a case that uh, it took so long for even for human rights activists in Russia to sort of say uh, this is probably a political case because it's, you know, you don't want to touch a case like that with a 10-foot pole. Uh, it seems the whole ground around him immediately seems contaminated. But, of course, for, the, for this kind of thing to work and for it to work well and for it to work as a moral panic, it, it can't just be political. So the first people to actually land in, uh, on these kinds of charges seem to be picked at random. Uh, and in one case that I describe in some detail in the book that seems to have been one of the earliest cases, possibly the first case, is just a random uh, Moscow civil servant who 
uh, his daughter ended up in the emergency room with, uh, with an injury and somebody thought that her urine contained sperm and then every time they retested it, they didn't find anything, so it was a clear uh, anomaly, but it was too late. He had already been charged and there was no way he was going to get acquitted. Mm. Um, tragic. Uh, let's look into the bright future. Oh, yeah, uh, okay. Uh, uh, next year there are elections in Russia and there are <laughs> many other elections ahead. I was just going to say there is no future, but now I have to say there is no elections. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, I was at a seminar and there was a young Russian politician, uh, her name is Natalia Gryanznevich. Do you have you heard of her? No? Okay, and she had this uh, fantastic. I know maybe this is a saying, but uh, uh -huh. I heard it from her. Uh, in 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 the West, you have uh, uh, the the elections are a predictable procedure with unpredictable results. In <laughs> Russia, we have it the other way around. <laughs> right. Yeah. So my question is actually. Why is Russia keeping up this facade of democracy that everyone knows is not working? You know, it's a great question. Uh, why? Because I, I actually... Um, I wrote a lot when I was still in Russia. I was, uh, I was in courts a lot because I, you know, I, I find court reporting to be fascinating, but also I was covering so many cases. And, and, and I was writing this book about Pussy Riot, so I, I, I kept going to all of their court hearings. And I kept wondering, you know, why do they do this? Why do, uh, you know, with, with uh, less than half percent of all people who are charged being acquitted, with the outcome of every court hearing known ahead of time, why do this? You know, why have a judge, a robe, you know, a room? Uh, like, uh, who is the... Uh, it's it's a show. It's a bad show, but still a show. And um, and who is the audience? Because obviously, the defendants aren't the audience. They know that they're not going to get justice. The prosecution isn't the audience because the prosecution knows that whatever it says is going to be the decision. As a journalist, I'm not the audience because uh, they don't care about me. And um, and they would make a they would put on a better show if it was for if, the journalists. they did care, yeah. Mm -hmm. right. um, and then I thought, well, maybe it's not a question of audience. Maybe it's just a tool. Like, there isn't another tool for putting people in prison. Uh, Putin can't just say, put him in prison. Okay. Right? Like, when he became president, he got a toolbox. And that toolbox had courts in it. And it's not a great tool, it's not a very efficient tool, but, uh, but he's not concerned with efficiency, and it works well enough. You can tell the courts what to do, and they do it. Right? Um, and so it becomes a part of the bureaucracy. I think elections are a little bit like that. Uh, the, I think there is a point to Putin sort of reaffirming his power, reaffirming his legitimacy, as he understands it, every few years. It's also a stress point for the regime. They do get a little bit nervous around elections, but they would also get a little bit nervous about canceling elections. And when they sort of weigh these things, they figure it's probably less risky to, to go ahead with this farce than to cancel the farce. What? But mostly it's just because it's there. Why, why, why do they get nervous? What are they nervous for? The, the, the little nervousness that they have? 
uh, around the elections? Yeah, around the elections. Or another way to put it, do the elections have any kind of function for the opposition? Any, does, it, does, does it have any... So, see, this is, this is where it gets really terminologically difficult, right? Because, because these are not elections, and then we use the word opposition, and it's not an opposition. Because if you use the word opposition, then it immediately suggests that there are people who have access to media, who have access to electoral mechanisms, but people who are opposed, actually opposed to Putin, do not have access to media and do not have access to the electoral mechanisms. The people who are running against Putin are not opposed to Putin. They're just participating in the spectacle of running against Putin. Um, so. Are elections meaningful for, for people um, who are opposed to Putin? Yeah, because they, uh, they are a kind of mobilizing moment. That's when we can talk about the fact that the elections are a farce. That's when we can talk about the fact that this is the thing that we don't have access to. This is exactly the point where they're lying to us. right? And because that's a mobilizing factor for the opposition or for people who are opposed to Putin, that's a point of stress for the regime. And so the regime has to round up all these people who are fake opposition in order to crowd out the real opposition so they can go ahead with the spectacle of the election. <laughs> this is a very obvious example of the, of the, of the regime being proactive. They are putting everything in place on beforehand, and they know everything on beforehand. But right. that's a, uh, in other occasions, I, I, I wonder a bit about how much uh, is reactive and how much is proactive from the government side. I mean, uh, you have this, uh, uh, when people were uh, loving Putin's plan, and they were saying, and, and there was no plan, and they hadn't even presented a plan. No one had a plan. Uh, uh, they didn't even claim to have a plan. Uh, they claimed to have a plan, but they didn't show any plan. And still, people were believing in Putin's plan. Does Putin have a plan in that sense, they, or is it, is it more like uh, uh, a reactive system that that works on on different stimuli? Yeah, I don't. Uh, I think Putin has many plans. Mm. Right. Uh, because Putin does have a very large uh, bureaucracy and uh, everyone in that bureaucracy has some sort of plan, uh, mostly that they want funded. Uh, somebody had a plan for occupying Crimea, for example. Uh, somebody had a plan for invading Ukraine. Somebody, I'm sure, has a plan for occupying Belarus and somebody has a plan for invading Moldova. Um, and. Um, you know, those are actually important and real things. Uh, uh, the, most of the money is being spent on the military, and so that's where most of the plans are being drawn up. And they're a little bit like, um, like a gun in a, in a Chekhov play. Uh, it, has to, it has to fire in the third act, except there's so many guns, it's like a whole wall of guns, and you don't know actually which gun he's going to take off the wall and fire, which is where it, he doesn't have a plan. Right. He has many plans. Uh, and um, he, he doesn't have a strategy, but he does have a really good nose for opportunity. And so when opportunity presents itself, he gets into a situation 
Uh, and then he never thinks about how he's going to get out of that situation. Ukraine is an, is an excellent example, right? I mean, the, uh, the way that that was carried out, uh, it made it clear that there had been a plan for occupying Crimea, and it made it clear um, that actually they, you know, that, that government can function extremely efficiently in certain moments, but it has a really, really short horizon. And that is Putin's many plans. So he, is, he has actually, he, he, he has a freedom uh, to in his life, not only a freedom from. Uh, but uh, I want to now, uh, we actually time goes past uh, far too fast, but I want to go back to, to these micro histories of all the, all the people in the book. Uh, you pa paint them very well and in, and in great detail. I love the fact yeah. that when you, when you, when you describe how someone goes into a cafe after a demonstration, you you write that they not only that they walk into a cafe, but even the color of the skin on the on the on the chairs and everything. I I, re I really love that. Uh, and one thing when you follow them and you you follow them through different stages in their lives who they meet and where they move and so on and it's a certain kind of mobility and that's a thing that that i i wondered about going back to eric from as well he writes and you were into that at, at certain points people have social mobility and certain yeah. points not how is it in, in Russia today? What is this? Because these persons, but they are exceptions maybe, they have a, a social mobility. They, are, they go in exile, some of them, mm -hmm. they move around in the city, they change uh, jobs and everything and different. But how is it in general? Does the ordinary Russian see themselves as, okay, now I'm this and I will be this for all my life because my father was this and so on, or is it more of a like, uh, you know? So uh, that's that's a great question. It's a very complicated one, um, and that's going into the book. I I was thinking about that a lot uh, because I was thinking about how, for the Soviet person, uh, the future was laid out very well. Um, and generally speaking, you were going to be roughly what your parents were, and uh, in that way, it was almost like the pre sort of uh, pre modern society in the sense that you were almost born into a trade and often into a neighborhood and into a kind of future, but, um, but you still had small manageable decisions to make. So you had, you had a little tiny bit of agency. You could, you could choose, for example, to join the party or to try to join the party or not to join the party. And that was, that was a major career choice within a narrow corridor. Um, and then things exploded in the 1990s, and that uh, the future was no longer planable, was no longer foreseeable. It really, really had to be invented. And I think the four people in the book, uh, even though they come from, from pretty different backgrounds, they do invent their future. And then at a certain point, uh, because I conducted my interviews chronologically, uh, I mean, with each person, we would start in their childhood and keep going chronologically and thematically. So at a certain point I realized that all of my subjects had started using the, the phrase in Russian, it's there's no future. And it means, uh, you know, I don't see a future for myself or for my country. Uh, I just can't see it. I have reached the limit 
of being able to invent myself. And I thought, you know, what kind of language has an actual phrase for not having a future? What does it tell us about ourselves that, you know, the possibility of hitting a dead end in your own life has words for it? Um, and, and I think it tells us, you know, a huge, a huge amount. It, and, and I think that that's, that's what the title of the book is. I think that most people in Russia and the country itself have hit that point where they don't see a future. And what I was just saying about Putin's planning horizon is also related to that. I don't think he sees a future more than a few weeks in, adv in advance. And so, and, so, and so, yeah, my characters, uh, the ones who could, went into exile where they see a future once again, as uncertain as it might be. But the title could be interpreted in another way too. Yes. As in the future is history, as in uh, the only future that we have must rely on our history. Or yes. two, uh, say it in vaguely different terms, but uh, make Russia great again or something like that. <laughs> yes. Um, so, you know, to my mind, that's not much of a future, but that's absolutely, you're absolutely right. That's, uh, that's a meaning that I also had in mind. Um, it's, the, it's the imaginary past. And imaginary past is actually also a term from Eric Fromm, uh, and it's so relevant to the way that Putin has built his uh, allure. And of course, that's, that's the campaign that Donald Trump ran while I was writing the book. He was running a campaign of the imaginary past. Mm -hmm. um, but there is a future. Uh, as I said, there is an election. But then you say there is no future and there is no election. But okay, there will be, and everyone knows this in Sweden, uh, soccer world championship in Russia next year. <laughs> because Sweden just qualified. <laughs> I just wanted to see how many reactionary nationalists were out there. <laughs> okay, uh, so Sweden will go to Russia. I don't know if it will be Kaliningrad or, or St. Petersburg or Moscow uh, and play. And I just wonder, have you heard anything? You, you have these big sport events in your book. Not, it's not mm -hmm. the main theme, but they are there. The Olympic Games, uh, of course, the Olympic Winter Games that were so large propaganda triumph, but also intersected with politics in ways that they either release or, or imprison people before mm -hmm. and after and so on. So it, it actually has a very profound political meaning too, these symbol mm -hmm. games. So have, you, have you heard anything about mobilizing from the side of the, of the activists or the regime or anything yeah. about this? Um. You know, it's the weirdest thing. Every few years, I end up in this very building. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> talking about uh, a sporting event, which uh, <laughs> which I find <laughs> incredible. Um, but I recall I was here in uh, November 2013. So yeah, exactly four years ago, mm -hmm. asking the Minister of Culture and Sport not to send the Swedish team to, to, uh, and not to go herself to the Sochi Olympic Games. Uh, and I think she didn't end up going. Um, but, um, so, you know, I don't know if it's worth, uh, would you do me a favor and not go to the, to the World Cup in, in Russia? I promise I won't go, <laughs> okay, I thank promise. You. Uh, yeah. I, um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's a certain, um, there's a certain confluence between uh, dictatorships and sporting events. 
uh, increasingly dictatorships are the only countries that are really willing to invest in the image making of a sporting event. Uh, that's why Olympic Games, you know, keep going to China and Russia and other lovely places. Um, and um, for human rights organizations, uh, th these big sporting events have become a, 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 a sort of a, a way of measuring time. They know that countries will often try to clean up their record a little bit in advance of a sporting event, and that a crackdown will follow a sporting event. And that it is the worst time uh, to be a dissident in a country is right after a sporting event, because newspapers that have been in television companies that have been covering that country during the sporting event are not going to do any stories from that country right around the time that arrests happen and, and executions happen. And in, um, uh, in February uh, or in the fall of 2013, uh, Russian courts scheduled a whole number of sentencing dates for February 24th, 2014. It was incredibly cynical. It was the day after the Olympic Games were going to end. Uh, and, that's, and that's when a lot of the sentences in the uh, Bolotne case, the, 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 the case of the, um, the signal case of the, of the protesters who'd been arrested during the 2011-2012 protests, that's when they all got sentenced. So, you know, I don't expect anything good to come um, out of the sporting event. And of course, there's, there's a really ominous story in the book about um, one of the characters going to the World Cup in Donetsk. Mm -hmm. uh, and then going back again a year later uh, to, to see the city completely, the a city that had been built up for the World Cup and that was completely destroyed a year later. Something On to that think about. Note, yeah. I have just one last question for you. <laughs> That's time is up. Will you ever write the history of the decline and fall of the Putin Empire? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had that was the plan, right? <laughs> <laughs> but clearly not Putin's plan. Um, you know, I. I one can hope. I'm younger than he is, <laughs> so, uh, so maybe maybe I have my chance. And um, another saying uh, that that, um, that that Russians have, uh, and actually Karnichukovsky said it, is that in Russia you have to live a long time. <laughs> so to do that, I will probably have to live a long time. But I have every intention of doing that. We all hope you live a long and prosper. That you outlive outlive Putin and his regime and that you write many more wonderful books like this. Thanks so much for to uh, talking Thank to you. me. Thank you. Thank you.